good morning, everyone, and welcome to Faith Covenant Church. We are extremely thankful that you are joining with us this morning, whether you are here in person or online. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and this is week two of our series that we're doing called Hashtag Relationship Goals. If you don't know what hashtag means, ask someone younger than you and they will tell you. Uh, Now, a quick content warning. Today may be uh, occasionally a little PG-13, so if you've got young, sensitive ears in the crowd, uh, I don't want to see a complaint on the Connect card, so you have been warned. Now, one of the big um, problems that we end up facing in marriage, or really any relationship, is that we all come into relationships with different expectations and dreams and desires and needs. And rarely are one person's the same as another's. There are so many examples of this, uh, different expectations of how we should manage our money, different dreams about what our lifestyle should look like, different needs for how we feel loved and appreciated, maybe different conflicting career goals or opposing thoughts on whether or not you need to put your laundry back in the dresser when it's done being washed and sitting in the laundry basket. You know, we all have different expectations of marriage, dreams for our lives, and thoughts on how our partner should act. And now a great example of this is sex. It got real quiet, didn't it? (laughs) A lot of people, when they get married, have totally different thoughts on how much sex is going to happen in marriage. When I was 20-something and single and thinking about getting married, I had a very particular idea about how much sex was going to happen in marriage. And to put it delicately, I thought marriage was simply going to be one continuous sex festival. (laughs) Oh, man. In my head... I thought it was going to be like, you know, I'll get home from work, we'll eat a super protein-packed dinner, because we'll need all that protein for all of the adult activities that we're going to spend all of our free time doing. That's what I dreamed it was going to be like, and I know I'm not the only dude here who dreamed that marriage was going to be like that, because all of my friends who are also in their 20s and thinking about marriage thought the exact same thing. When we're dreaming about our hashtag relationship goals, it's probably not something that we'd be allowed to post on Instagram. Now, I'm not saying that the other side of the marriage partner doesn't also enjoy coming to know each other in the biblical sense, but it's highly likely that their expectation of marriage was probably a little bit different than their sex-obsessed future husbands. But that's the deal with marriage, isn't it? We all come into it with different desires, expectations, and dreams of how our lives will pan out. And the problem isn't that we have different desires and dreams. The problem is that oftentimes our desires come into conflict with our partners. And when we don't deal with those differences well, it can easily transform our marriages from hashtag relationship goals to hashtag relationship fails. If we want to have a healthy, God-glorifying relationship, we need to figure out how to deal with our different desires and expectations. So today, we're going to be talking about what the Bible teaches about how we can approach those different expectations in a way that ends up deepening our relationship rather than deepening the divides in our relationships. 
But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we come to you today uh, all in a different position in relationships, whether we're married or single, whether we're feeling like our relationships are healthy or not. So today, Lord, we ask that your words speak to us and help us see how we can pursue our relationships in a way that you teach us to. Lord, we do have some different um, things going on in our congregation that we want to lift up. We lift up the Gamash family as they are mourning the passing of Rob. Be with them as they've dealt with so much loss. Give them uh, strength of your presence. Provide them with uh, support that they need. Lord, we also are praying for uh, our different ministries that are going on this week. We also think about our youth volunteers who are now um, in their first week of, of running, second week of running things without Eric. Continue to encourage them and give them wisdom as they help lead our kids uh, in faithfulness. God, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So like Pastor Mike said last week, we're talking about passages that aren't necessarily directly about marriage, but they still teach us lessons that do apply directly to marriage and relationships. So whether you're newly married uh, or been married a long time or are thinking about maybe someday being married, these passages have a lot to teach us. So let's together check out this passage from the Apostle Paul's letter to Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So the first thing Paul does here is that he identifies one of the biggest enemies of healthy relationships. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now the level of definitiveness here is overwhelming. Notice that he doesn't say, hey, it's okay to sometimes do things that are selfish or ah, occasionally go ahead and be self-obsessed and do whatever you want. No, instead, Paul says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So why does Paul make such a bold statement here? Well, he understands this really important point, and that is that selfishness is a relationship killer. You know, Meredith and I, we've only been married for seven years uh, which for a lot of you is nothing. Some of you are like, seven years? I've had a bunion longer than seven years. <laughs> but even though seven years isn't really that long, it is still long enough to recognize how true Paul's point is. Self-centeredness ruins everything in relationships. Let me give you an example. Meredith and I had planned a date and 99.9% .9 of the time, there is a really clear delineation between work life and home life for my wife. But occasionally, on very rare occasions, something does happen for her that cannot wait until tomorrow morning and requires her attention after normal work hours are up. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes it does. Well, we had planned this date, and on our way to dinner, she had to field a work call. It was like one of those things that needed 
her to deal with it like right then and there. There was no way around it. And honestly, this should not have been a big deal. It was like five minute work call, one and done. They needed her to deal with it and she did. But even though this is not something that's normally a problem for us, and even though this should not have been a big deal, this is what happened in my mind. She answered the phone and immediately I started thinking, ugh, I took the time to plan this date for us and instead of focusing on me like she should, she's getting distracted by work. And she was working all day. They already had her for eight hours. Can't she just set aside a little time for me? She's ruining this amazing time that I planned. How could she do this to me? Doesn't she realize how much effort I put into keeping this relationship going? <laughs> and on and on and on, I spiraled. And so the whole time she's on this five-minute work call, I'm thinking about how much she has offended me and interrupted this great date that I planned. And woe is me because I am an amazing husband and my wife will never recognize it because she's too distracted by work. Anyone else ever get caught up in an unreasonable brain spiral of self-pity? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. So for the entire time she's on the phone, I'm thinking, I do all of these great things for her. I work hard. I try to carry my weight around the house with the chores and the cooking. Heck, I even planned this date so we could have good time together. And what does she do? She gets distracted by work. And I'm so great, and she doesn't even really appreciate it because obviously I'm the better spouse. Ugh. You know what happens when we get stuck on those types of thoughts? Well, first, we paint ourselves a delusional picture of ourselves as the faultless hero who is undervalued. But we also put ourselves in a bad mood and kind of ruin everything. Meredith, she got off the phone and she said, I'm so sorry, I should be good to know or to go now. And you want to know how I responded? I gripped the steering wheel and I said, fine. And then I proceeded to drive in silence all the way to the restaurant, thinking about how I'm such a good spouse and how she ruined the date by taking a work call. And she doesn't appreciate me. And if she really loved me, she wouldn't have taken that call at all. And you know what? Our date was miserable. And I came to realize later that she didn't ruin that date by taking the work call it was literally less than five minutes, and we were in the car on the way to the restaurant. I ruined that date by getting in my own head and letting myself believe a bunch of self-centered stuff about how I do everything, and she can't even take one evening to pay attention to me. I should have responded to her work call like this. Hey, is everything okay? Anything I can do to help? You work so hard, I'm glad that we get to spend the rest of the night together enjoying each other's company. But instead, I systematically destroyed any chance we had at having a pleasant, life-giving evening together, and I probably sowed seeds for future conflict. I allowed my self-centered thinking to ruin our date. And here's the point. Self-centeredness ruins relationships. People who are consistently self-seeking, self-serving, or self-centered tend to ruin their relationships with others. 
In fact, there's a journalist and filmmaker named Dana Adam Shapiro, and they saw how many of their friends were getting divorced, so they started compiling interviews of divorced couples to find out what led to the demise of their relationships. And what they found was the thing that most often led to marital disintegration was that one partner would act in self-centeredness and the other partner would reciprocate with their own self-serving actions, leading to a downward spiral of impatience, harshness, resentfulness, unkindness, and eventually apathy. I love how Tim Keller explains this process. He says, self-centeredness by its very character makes you blind to your own self-centeredness while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. The result is always a downward spiral into self-pity, anger, and despair as the relationship gets eaten away to nothing. If you're sitting there saying, mm-hmm, my spouse needs to hear this. They are so self-centered. <laughs> if that's what you're thinking, you might be missing the point. <laughs> because the problem in most relationships it is not that our spouse is self-centered and I can't even deal with them anymore. More often, it's that we are both self-centered. As I was working on this sermon, I wanted to try and help you determine if you struggle with self-centeredness in relationships. So I actually came up with a quick little quiz. So I'm going to have you raise your hand if your answer is yes to this, these questions. So first question, how many of you are human? That's it. That's the only question in the quiz. <laughs> because if you raise your hand, then you struggle with self-centeredness in relationships. It's just how it is. Even if you're the one who's more willing to sacrifice time and energy for your relationship, there's a good chance that sometimes you sit around at night thinking, I did all this stuff for my spouse and they didn't even notice. <laughs> you know what that's called? Self-centeredness. Yes, you are right. And this is actually um, one of the Bible's central teachings on sin. You know, we're all sinful, and one part of that sinfulness is that we are selfish. Ever since Adam and Eve were tempted to choose their way over God's in the Garden of Eden, even in the Garden of Eden, humans have struggled with this tendency to prefer themselves and what benefits them over everything else. And so when it comes to relationships, when our self-centeredness encounters our partner's self-centeredness, unless we do something to correct the direction, it will eat away at our relationships. And that's part of what makes Paul's words so powerful here when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He recognizes this tendency within human relationships that ends up ruining them, and he's saying, fight it. Be on the lookout for it. Remember, it's your natural predilection to be selfish. So do everything you can to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, here's a place where clarity is our friend, because it's easy to take this idea incorrectly and for it to become a really unhealthy way of looking at life. So let's ask the question, what exactly does Paul mean when he says, selfish ambition, or vain conceit. 
Now, when you read Paul a lot, you begin to realize that he really likes to do this thing where he takes two or three phrases together that have very similar meanings. And the point isn't that each phrase has a totally separate meaning. Instead, the phrases are meant to be taken together to communicate one larger idea. The point is, when we read this passage, we're not necessarily supposed to think that vain conceit and selfish ambition are drastically different concepts. Rather, those two things taken together communicate one general unified concept. And that unified concept that the two phrases create is simple. Vain conceit and selfish ambition communicate an attitude where we end up acting in such a way where the primary goal is to get your way with little thought to what's actually good for other people. So the issue here is not that we have dreams or desires or expectations. Instead, the issue is when we pursue those dreams and desires in a way that does not consider the good of others, or when we let our expectations influence the way we act in a way that loses track of the needs, desires, and dreams of the other person in the relationship. Paul's point is this. If you are constantly pursuing your wants, desires, or expectations without considering what is good for the other person, you will wreck your relationship because selfishness is a relationship killer. But Paul doesn't just say, hey, don't be selfish. He gives us an alternative of how we should try and act towards each other as well. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, every word in this sentence is extremely important. So I want to break this down a little bit for us to really try and get a good idea of what Paul's teaching. First, before Paul gives the instruction on what to do, he gives us an attitude that we need to adopt so that we can act out the teaching he's giving. He says, rather, in humility. Now, humility is simply this. It's an attitude where a person lowers their concern for their own position or desires and instead puts themselves in a position where they serve and care for others. This is huge. Paul's recognizing for us that there's an attitude that we have to adopt that helps us fight selfishness, and this attitude is humility. Jesus sums up the idea of humility in these words. He says, Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' point is so great. Obviously, He's the greatest among the people that he's talking to here. I mean, he is the son of God, but he says, I am among you as one who serves. He willingly made less of himself so he could care for and serve others. This is not self-deprecation. This is not self-loathing. It's not saying, oh, I'm so weak, I'm so worthless, I can't do anything. Humility, instead, is realizing, 
I could demand that I get my way here, but instead I'm not going to. And I could expect other people to serve me, but instead I'm going to choose to serve. And I could demand to be the center of attention, but instead I'm going to choose to make others the center of attention. Having the attitude of humility, it means that we don't need to be the one who always gets our way. Paul's, Paul's idea is that with this attitude of humility, we can start to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And that's the action that Paul wants us to take in relationships. Basically, he's saying, when it comes to our competing desires, we can choose to demand to get our way by fighting or manipulation or just by doing what we want regardless of the other person. But the route that we should take is that we should value others above ourselves. And instead of demanding our own way, we should try and put the desires and needs of our partner above our own. So in terms of marriage, what this basically means is that marriage should be a competition for who will outdo the other in seeking to meet the other's needs and desires. When I was a teenager, my dad taught me how to deer hunt. And it's important to note that for my dad, hunting was this thing that helped him get recharged and reinvigorated. He worked long hours, a lot of times seven days a week, in a super hard and demanding job. And he also made being a, with his family a, a big priority. And so deer season every year, it was like his one chance to get away and recharge. So one year, I expressed to him that I wanted to learn how to deer hunt as well. And he agreed, and he took me out to this property that we were going to hunt. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he intentionally put me in the best spot on the whole property, the spot that had the greatest chance for success. He could have saved that spot for himself. In fact, he deserved to save that spot for himself. But he didn't. Why? Because my success was more important to him than his excess. And my enjoyment was more important to him than his enjoyment. And he wanted me to have a great time, even if that meant he had to give up the spot with the greatest likelihood of harvesting a deer. This is the attitude that Paul wants us to have towards our spouse as well. He wants us to say, I want you to succeed, even if it means me having to give up things that I want for that to happen. And I want you to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, even if that means that sometimes I don't always get to do the things that I want to do. And I want you to feel and know that you're loved and cared for, even if that means doing things that you love and that I think are boring. More than that, more than I want to win, I want you to win. More than I want to succeed, I want you to succeed. And here's what happens when we do this for each other. For starters, we end up fighting differently and less toxically. 
When you stop demanding that your way is the only way and start embracing what your partner dreams of, it radically changes the dynamics in a relationship. But I would argue, more importantly, when we do this, we make our partners feel loved the way that they are supposed to feel loved. When I take the time to understand my partner's and work to understand them and prioritize in such a way where I'm sacrificing some of my own desires for their dreams, that's kind of what Jesus tells us that love is, isn't it? The Apostle John wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And when we do this in marriage, it is a beautiful thing. And finally, I think that we're just created to live this way. When we look at how Jesus teaches, or when we look at Jesus' teachings on how we're supposed to approach life, this attitude of humility and pursuing the good of others above ourselves, it is central to the ethic of Jesus. I mean, think about the Beatitudes, where Jesus commends the lowly in spirit and the meek. Or when Jesus encourages us to intentionally take the lowest seat at a banquet. Or when we read that it's better to give than to receive. This is a way of life that is ultimately good for our souls because we give up the unbearable burden of needing to get our way and we embrace the joy of making others feel loved and cared for. But let's get practical here. What does it look like to do this in our relationships? Well, three things to try. First, start trying to be cognizant of your own selfishness and how it creeps into everything. Sometimes that simple act of trying to recognize how we're being selfish, it can radically transform an interaction that we're having with our spouse, and it allows us to start dealing with the selfishness that can corrupt everything. But we can't just leave it at identifying selfishness we actually need to act as well. And so a good way to think about this is to listen, learn, and pursue. It is amazing how often we're unable to follow Paul's instructions here because we're simply not able to, uh, sorry, we're not able to, to love our spouses because we simply don't know what our spouse's dreams and hopes and desires actually are. So let me encourage you to start by listening. When your partner starts to talk, instead of looking for the first opportunity to change the subject to something that you want to talk about, spend time listening. Ask questions. Try to figure out what they are actually telling you and why. This goes a long way in helping you learn, which is the second part of this. We need to learn what our partner is really desiring. And once you start to understand that, you can pursue it. Be interested in it. Find ways to empower them to accomplish it. Make acting on what you learn a priority, a bigger priority than acting on your own interests. And then, when your desires come into conflict with theirs, choose theirs. This is the hard part, but it's the essential part. When we make that shift from needing to get our own way to choosing our partner's way, we start to transform our relationships. Because here's what happens. 
Either you end up going with your partner's way, and then you get the joy of helping them and supporting them and loving them like Christ loves us, or you both get to a place where you're willing to give up your own desires for the sake of your partner, and that brings you to this awesome place where instead of competing with each other and demanding to get your own way, you are actually able to have reasonable conversations about what is best for your relationship because both sides are willing to sacrifice their wants and needs for the sake of the other person. Because if I'm at a place where I can say, I may want this, but you're more important to me and I'm willing to give this up to help you get that, and if your partner is in the same place, you can now say, hey, if we're both willing to sacrifice here, what is honestly the best choice for us? And this is a game changer. Now, I want to emphasize how amazing it is when relationships operate like this is normal. It totally transforms your enjoyment of your marriage. It totally transforms your kid's perspective of what a good marriage can be. And it creates an amazing witness to the gospel that your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, and your family get to see. Now, I'm not going to lie. This puts a lot of us in a tough spot because we find ourselves in a position where we're willing to do this, but our spouse is not. So why would I do this if my spouse won't? Well, Pastor Mike is going to talk about that next week. <laughs> uh, but for real, he is. He is. But it's still important for us to read these next few lines from Paul. Paul wrote, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is one of the reasons that I love reading Paul. Paul just gave these proactive instructions for us. He said, in humility, value others above yourselves. And then in these verses, he shows how Jesus willingly took on a lowly position and became a servant. In other words, how Jesus acted in humility. You see that connection? And then Paul tells us in the instructions to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, to which he then shows us how Jesus valued us above himself and sought what was in our best interest, so much so that he literally gave up everything and died on a cross for us. In short, Paul's saying, if you're wondering why you should live this way, well, remember Jesus, who epitomizes how a human should live? This is how he lived. And remember Jesus, who gives us the perfect example of love? This is how he loved. And remember Jesus, who inspires us to want to be like him? This is what he is like. Paul calls on the example of Jesus to help us see this is a good way to live. This is 
the right way to live. But I think there's an even deeper part of this. When we wonder why we should try and live someone who's not, love someone who's not reciprocating in this way, Paul throws out this example to us because the only way Jesus was able to change your heart toward him was by valuing you above himself and seeking your interest above his own and dying so that you could live. If that's what it took to change our hearts toward him, maybe that's what it takes to change others' hearts as well. So church, let's remember to not act in selfishness, but rather in humility, value our partners above ourselves, pursuing their interests over our own. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Jesus, thank you for the example that you set for us about how to live and how to love, how to value others. We pray right now that you help us identify our selfishness, that you help us adopt an attitude of humility where we eagerly seek the lower position and not demand our own way so that we can value others above ourselves. Lord, help us love our partners in this way so that we can be an example to others and to our spouse. And Lord, we ask that you help our spouses love us in this way so that our relationship can be an example of Christ's love for the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.